0: Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert health care to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo.
1: Edition of Walk Talk, we sit down with Anne Marie Knee. Anne Marie is a family nurse practitioner on the Wound and Ostomy Care team at Children's Minnesota. Her areas of interest are preventing pressure injuries in pediatrics and wound healing. She has published in the area of pressure injury prevention in pediatrics and has spoken nationally and internationally on the subject. Anne-Marie is a board member on the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel. She was the chair of the small working group related to neonatal and children PI prevention and participated in the group on medical device-related pressure injuries of the revised 2019 Prevention and Treatment of Pressure Injuries, Clinical Practice Guideline by the EPUAP, the NPIAP, and the Pan Pacific PI Alliance. She currently treats children of all ages with skin wounds and ostomy diagnoses, and she is in her third year of studies for a PhD nursing program. Thanks so much for joining me, Anne-Marie.
2: Thank you for having me, Jody. I'm just very excited to be here. I was thinking that we would sort of focus this
1: talk a little bit today, if it's okay with you, on a lot of questions that WOC nurses have that maybe work in a more generalist role or work in home care or don't work in pediatrics like you spend your day in. So I came up with a whole list of questions for you about things that I often wonder about or struggle with. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to give a lot of information to our listeners today. So I really appreciate you being here.
2: I will sure try my best. Okay, be um, here well. and yeah, ask away.
1: Okay. Well first of all, tell us a little bit about your nursing background and your WOC nursing background and how you came to be where you are today, if you don't mind.
2: Sure. I started like you know most people into a nursing program right out of college. And unfortunately I chose to go away from my home. I'm from a family of 10 and you get very close to (laughs) a lot of people and them not being around. I didn't finish that program and I went back home. And at that point I chose to work and I worked as a secretary. I married my husband and told him I was unhappy and wanted to be back in school for nursing. And so I did that. I went into a diploma program and I was um, graduated from the diploma program and from there, as I started working in adults, and actually on the adult rehab department, and it was a CNS, which was one of the few at that time, who started um, introducing me to wounds. And the only product that was really considered advanced was Duoderm. And the whole thing just so excited me. And I started looking. This is in the, my daughter was born in 90, 92. So this is in 92 and 93. I started looking at what the certification was. And at that point, it was only an ET nurse. And I really wasn't as excited about ostomies as wounds. And so I chose not to get that certification. Instead, I went back to school and got my BSN. And once I got my BSN, because I was having children, I have four children, I went into home care. And in home care, a lot of what we do was wound directed. And so at that point, I started learning about the wound products and everything that kind of went along with it. And home care, I got hired on in the rehab department in a pediatric hospital, and it was on that floor that I went and got my certification. They were on their magnet journey, and I was actually informed by the nurse who was in charge of the magnet journey, that children did not get pressure injuries, but I was seeing them on the floor, and I knew that you know we needed to move forward with this. So I went and got my WOCN, and then the hospital posted a position for a WOCN, which I was so grateful for, and ended up being the first one at that particular hospital. And it for the magnet journey is when we started down the pressure injury prevention path. So that's kind of how. I ended up in that role.
1: Okay. And so tell us where you work now and what kind of a role you're in currently.
2: So I currently work at Children's Minnesota, and I am a nurse practitioner. I'm a family nurse practitioner, and I actually chose that on purpose, even though I was working in a pediatric hospital, because what I came to find out is the kids grow up and they don't have a good place to go back to because the adults usually don't deal with MACEs or ACEs or the things that these now grown-up kids have. And so currently at Children's Minnesota, we're an all-nurse practitioner team. We have one neonatal nurse practitioner and two family nurse practitioners currently. And I lead the pressure injury prevention program along with a quality teammate. And so we partner together for that.
1: So what's your usual day like, Anne-Marie? I bet you see a lot of patients in the midst of all of that.
2: I do I see a lot the midst for that. So typically in the morning, we go through, we have system set up so that we get automatic consults from not only the nursing staff, and then of course, the physicians or the provider staff can also put in consults. And we go through that. That's our very first thing in the morning to make sure that we don't miss anybody. And then we carry a a list of patients that we follow uh, throughout the week. And then once a week on Thursday afternoons, I also have an ambulatory clinic setting And I can see any age group in there, any wound, ostomy, or any continence issues.
1: Great. So we all, I think, have our type of patient that we really love to take care of. We find them the most interesting and most challenging. What type of patient is that for you?
2: Vax. I don't know what it is about wound Vax, but I just love wound Vax. And the first pediatric hospital that I worked with, one of the surgeons actually dubbed me the queen of the Vax. (laughs) (laughs) I put bags on multivisceral transplant patients there. We had Whipple procedures done with, you know, they all have ostomies at the same time. And it just to me was such a a challenge and so satisfying to be able to heal these wounds that are right next to an ostomy and keep those two separated, working with little body space. So any and all wound backs, I have a couple right now that actually have double wound bags on. Um, so Yeah,
1: that's fine. (laughs) So tell me about that because I think many of us that like practice across the continuum with less in children and more in bigger people are a little bit nervous with negative pressure. So do you like use lower settings with kids? Do you use a layer under the foam? Do you use like the white foam? So what's your usual practice with your patients with that there? So
2: with that there, truly it is all dependent on the age and so when I go into the neonatal unit and I will use um, negative pressure there, I always decrease the setting usually to about 50, um, depending on where it's at and what is exposed, whether I'll use a contact layer or not, but we always use white foam. Okay. okay. And then as they get older, <laughs> typically by the time they're hitting, you know, late school age, 11 and 12 years old, I used the typical pressure setting of 125. And then, of course, there's everything in between. I put them on our cardiac patients that ended up sometimes, unfortunately, with dehist surgical wounds. They may have had a transplant. And I'll work with a transplant surgeon. Those we usually typically babies. And we'll decrease it down to 100. And many of those are done under sterile procedure. But we definitely use negative pressure on them. It heals them up so well.
1: I bet even better than adults because of their young age, right?
2: Yeah, make sure that we, of course, have maximized nutrition with that. That's the one thing I've been able to see in dealing with children, which I'm sure you've seen as adults. When I get the family to buy in to the change in uh, their diet, that's when I'll see the wound just heal exponentially is on their diet.
1: And that's probably a challenge with some kids, too, to just like the adult population to get them to eat the healthier foods versus the junk or whatever.
2: It is. So I've got currently now she's not on negative pressure, but I currently have a 13 year old um, who just had a pilonidal cyst and she is extremely active in sports, which is unfortunately, to get those to heal, you really have to decrease the activity, which she wasn't too thrilled with. Mm-hmm. But she was a high carb user because of sports. They want a energy boost. And when I got her to switch to more of a higher protein, she would, her mother, who actually does the dressing changes, and her mother is actually her soccer coach, they started seeing the change so quickly, and they were so surprised at that. I always put them on a good uh, multivitamin because, you know, as a nurse practitioner, I'm able to prescribe that. And we definitely see a major change.
1: Do you use negative pressure for those pilonidal kids too, since we've been just talking about negative pressure?
2: I have. It just depends on the individual and whether it works or doesn't work. Sometimes by the time we put negative pressure on, the surgeons will have attempted to kill themselves with whatever dressing they choose. And by the time they're taking them back the second time because of whatever reason, that's when they hand them over to me. And if they're very large, then I will go ahead and put negative pressure on it. It becomes challenging, of course, because it's right near the anal opening, but that's when I utilize ostomy products, which I love Barrier Paste. <laughs> this is my favorite, one of my favorite products because it is so versatile. And not only helping to get the wounds to stay put, in a more moist area, you can also use it right there at the Glio cleft for securement.
1: Yeah. It really works too, doesn't it? Great.
2: Right, yes. Yeah.
1: All right. So now all of my questions about PEDS. I'm so excited. So tell me about barrier creams. Do you have like one that you stock in your whole hospital that you use routinely or are there particular ingredients that you look for, for barrier creams on children and babies?
2: Yeah, we actually have three currently with a fourth one that's going to be brought in here shortly. Uh, And it depends on, for me, I always look at what's going on with them as to which barrier cream I choose. So if I've got a child with um, a lot of diarrhea and it typically would have to do with antibiotics or short gut, I stay away from the very high zinc oxide. And the reason I stay away from it is because there is a constant wiping. I can put in orders all the time, but I think there's just something instinctive in us as individuals that when we stole there, we want to get it off. And in order to get it off with that very thin zinc oxide, there's a lot of wiping that comes on and that friction actually adds to the erythema at the site. And so for those I actually use one that has a higher Petrolatum it actually has some dimethicone in it. And I do that on purpose because once that's down, you cannot, with just warm water, which is what I have them clean with, remove all of that petrolatum. There is always a layer left to the skin. As long as we start with that beautiful, nice, clean, dry skin, we're not even going to be worried about yeast at that point. And we always have a barrier. And I have been very successful in treating some pretty nasty open skin at the site. So we do have a good thick zinc oxide paste in-house and there is definitely uses for those. And we also have Ilex. because so I'm thinking, what is that? <laughs> so Ilex is reserved within our population just for open and bleeding skin. And we tend not to use it for a typical diaper rash. And then of course we have a combination uh, it's a petrolatum base and an antifungal.
1: When you use the ilex, do you use like just plain petrolatum over it? Somebody taught me that with babies with pees. Do you do that or you don't? You find that? do
2: that or we've actually have have used the zinc oxide barrier base also. As long as it's got that layer on top of it, so it doesn't stick to the diaper.
1: Okay. And then what are your thoughts about cyanoacrylates? Like they're kind of the newer game in town, and we use those pretty widely on adults. What's your opinion about those, Anne Marie?
2: use them but not in diaper rashes okay the only time that i have used them successfully has actually been around youtube sites because what is coming out of there and they're usually the shortcuts it is highly toxic to the skin and a barrier just doesn't seem to do the job we've used ilex at the site for the um cryon i will not pronounce this correctly so i apologize the Cryonos, yeah
1: I think it's cyanoacrylate.
2: Cyanoacrylate, thank you.
1: I might be wrong too. We'll all be getting emails. Oh, like
2: you're not. I'm not pronouncing it correctly. I apologize. I really do. Yeah, so that works actually very successfully around YouTube sites.
1: Okay. Oh, that's a good one to know too, because those we see with adults as well. So let's talk about ostomies and pouching a little bit. And so I wondered, like, how do you determine what size pouch the child goes in? And the reason I ask this is sometimes we send babies out in like the neonatal size, and then they come in two months later leaking a lot, and they're still in that neonate size. And, you know, then when you switch them to the regular pediatric size, that seems to solve that problem. But how do you determine like when it's time to move a child from one size to the other?
2: It honestly has everything to do with their growth and how fast they're growing. So it's not like, Oh, I wanted two years. You switch it to this because some babies are just like the general population. Some are larger than others. And it just depends on their body type. We had, because because we do have a clinic setting, we always teach them, you know, Hey, when you're having some difficulties here is our clinic, please come in and we'll help you, you know, find the next size up at least six months out. We usually, Whatever we put them in is usually okay for at least six months. And then at that point, it may have to be readjusted.
1: Okay. So that's a good time frame, like generally for most kids then. Yeah. Okay, good.
2: And then will you
1: talk a little bit about how you do ostomy teaching with like a parent and a child and like, how do you decide how much to include a child or is that very individual and you kind of have to assess each situation do you have any like general strategies about that if i'm maybe a person that occasionally does ostomy teaching on a new little kid with an ostomy
2: once they are verbal i always include them okay and be able to ask them questions and i talk to them specifically about what their pouches and what is going on with that that mom's going to be doing this or dad's going to be doing this And I make sure that they are always included in the conversation because it's their body. One of my general things is I do not have an ostomy preference. I'm not the one wearing it. Mm -hmm. So although in-house we have Hollisters and we have a few Convitec, that's what I have to give them. But once they go home, I give them all the websites for them to choose what they feel is successful for them. And then I just order it for them. So
1: where I work, we have a really skilled NICU staff who manage skin really well. So when they call us for a leaking ostomy, they've already like, tried a lot of stuff and have not had success. So what would you say your go-to solutions are for like leaking ostomies, particularly on babies or preemies? Do you have anything that you always do or always say to the nurse, did you do this? Did you do that type of thing?
2: Yeah. So again, my colleague, she's an NMP and she has a trick that I had never seen anywhere else. So the Hollister, if you look at the the Hollister premium pouches, they're kind of long and skinny and they have a very small barrier. But because typically you've got a lot of enzymes that are coming through the stoma, It eats away, actually, at the barrier real quickly, and you'll see a plastic film. All that's left on the skin is this plastic film. So she actually developed a process when she puts down two barriers. She puts down an e-conceal, and she puts down two barriers. And typically, she will get at least 72 hours out of it. Wow. Yeah, which in some kiddos, it's like a happy dance.
1: Yeah, that's like a miracle in my life. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And it works very well. I had never seen that before, but... I am a big component of if it works, we're going to leave this alone.
1: Exactly. So does she use a thin ring, a slim ring, or a regular Eakin, anne
2: Marie? No, we have regular Ekins in house. That's typically what she uses. Now, she may flatten it. It just depends, again, on the individual child.
1: Okay. Oh, that's a great idea. I can't wait to try that. And then I think, at least from what I've seen, sometimes we think that little children and babies are going to have a same expected wear time as an adult. And that hasn't been my experience. And then then people are all upset. It's like, well, that appliance isn't staying on five days on that little baby. And it's like, well, it probably wasn't ever going to stay on that long. So what do you say generally is a decent wear time and like to set expectations, especially for like preemies and babies for the parents, do you have like general rules of thumb that you say, well, you know, for a baby this size, I would expect that, or how does that go for you?
2: Well, so it usually depends on the baby's contours of what's going on because they have such small surface space. Usually we don't just have an ostomy. We have a mucous fistula and we've got a G-tube, right? So you've got all of these other things on a small, and it is a very small space. And so now I've got to get appliances on it that stay in place barrier strips are my friend. I use them a lot. And I will be at the bedside to help almost daily until we have figured out a really good strategy that works. And on some kids, if you're getting 48 hours, you're thrilled. On the older kids, and I'm not talking toddlers, because toddlers is a whole different issue with an ostomy, because they're doing their developmental milestones and their movement of the belly can sometimes, because it's moving so much, can actually decrease the wear time. And so for them also, I'm lucky, I want to say usually about three days is what I tell parents, but if they're getting three days, they're doing great. And if you move into school-age kids that are not active in sports, I usually try to tell the parents to get on a normal schedule of twice a week. I said, I want you to just routinely change this twice a week. I don't ever expect five-day wear time, especially when we hit the teenagers, because now we've got the hormones going and they are sweaty messes. And if we leave it on that time, they're going to come back with roaring yeast.
1: Oh, okay. You know what? Another question I commonly get, especially with babies, is gas. And so what are your recommendations for parents to manage that?
2: Typically, we use pouches that have the gas filter. Okay. Yeah. If not, we just, for babies and infants, we always recommend breastfeeding because it actually has less gas than bottle fed babies.
1: And then tell me a little bit about like the accessory products, like on adults and our teenagers, we use the rings and paste and prep and powder and, you know, whatever is indicated based on the patient. But what are your usual products that you like and use for your population?
2: Actually, it becomes very different across the whole continuum. So in the neonatal unit, Deanna routinely will put down no-sting barrier film because their skin is just so incredibly thin that it actually does help with uh, sealing and security of those pouches. But as they get older, I won't use the no-sting barrier film because if they are sweaty, then I'm sealing in any yeast that could potentially be there, and then we've got a nice infection I'm a minimalist on everything, so I always try minimal products first. So I just sent home a 11-year-old yesterday with IBS, and she had a colectomy done, so she's got an ileostomy, and the only thing I showed mom was just a barrier ring in the pouch, and that's where I start, and it's only add products if they start having difficulties.
1: And then do you have a preference like one piece versus two piece for like toddlers on up? Or is that kind of a parent and child comfort and preference kind of decision?
2: Parent and child comfort and preference. The only time I really recommend a two piece is for very active uh, school age and teenagers because I can give them a belt.
1: Do a lot of your kids wear like some kind of an over thing, you know, like ostomy secrets or one of those types of cover-up types of things? Or do you have any of those kind of things that you suggest? Like a lot of adults like those.
2: We don't have any in-house while we show them where the website is at. And some like them and some don't. My favorite was actually a, a younger girl who ended up with a permanent ileostomy. She would come in and she had gotten pouch covers and she had them all bedazzled. (laughs) <laughs> that was just amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I bet that was fun for her too. Yeah. So I bet you don't very much use stoma paste then because there's alcohol in many of those. So We
2: do not have stoma paste. We don't use stoma paste, the regular paste. It is either the rings or the strips. Okay. No alcohol. I used to use that a lot, but then I'd have to wait for it to evaporate before I could, you know, hopefully the alcohol, I'd wait in a minute for the alcohol to evaporate before I would move forward. Yeah. I always felt like I
1: had trouble getting paste off kids, little kids compared to adults too. And I felt like maybe I was going to injure skin even just trying to get a little bit of it off.
2: Yeah. So I shy away from the paste and it's no longer one of my go-to products.
1: Okay. And powder, how about that?
2: Powder I use when it's necessary. It's not something that I teach them routinely. I teach them why we use it. I teach them how to use it. But I don't recommend it from a normal pouch change unless they start seeing some erythema.
1: And then do you have an antifungal that you prefer for kids? At least around my area, we tend to be the 2% myconazole powder for like under ostomies. Do you have one that you think is, works better for kids than
2: that? I just use a nice Nystatin powder.
1: Nystatin. Nice okay.
2: And I know in our NICU,
1: we sometimes seem to get a little run of pressure ulcers around trachs. So, I'm wondering if you see that much and how do you manage those?
2: Currently, we see very little around trachs because we've got a really good protocol in place. But something that I kind of toyed with at the other hospital the one thing that we see a lot, especially around trachs, is it's lots of moisture, which I don't have any research to back me up as of yet. But anecdotally, you know, we want to make the connection that the moisture underneath the face plate of that trach is going to increase the susceptibility to pressure injuries. And so we use a foam dressing that allows for moisture evaporative properties there. And so it allows the moisture to evaporate. And at the same time, it's providing offloading properties to the trach itself.
1: And then do they stay a reasonable length of time on your little ones? Like they'll stay in place for a couple days. So you're not having to manipulate that too much.
2: Correct. And sometimes depending on what's going on with them, we will also use the one that has um, silver part of it, but it also allows for evaporative properties.
1: Okay. So it sounds like this evaporative properties is really the key.
2: It is the key so that you're not sealing in the moisture. You're allowing that moisture to come out and you're offloading the device.
1: Right. So it seems like maybe we need to be looking at more prevention and then we wouldn't be having to manage.
2: Correct. Yeah. We've even got it to the point where some of the ENT docs will put it down in the OR on
1: new That would be ideal, right? Because then it's there to begin with.
2: So in general, do you
1: have wound products that you like the best or go to frequently, like different categories, like a gel or an alginate or a hydrofiber? What would you say are the things that you use most commonly and successfully in your population, Anne-Marie? I use a honey
2: alginate a lot. If For my immunocompromised patients, uh, of course, if the wound is moist, I will use a silver hydrofiber, and then I am still a great love of a hydrogel, and I typically use it with a gauze, with an AMD gauze.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, that's easy for caregivers to do also, right?
2: Yeah, that's the one thing in looking at, you know, of course, all of our products, and we knowing that parents have to do this, I always make sure that I'm taking into consideration their home life. We have parents who come in and they've got multiple patients. We have um, children. We have parents who may, this is their first, but they have to work outside the home and you know somebody else is taking care of it. We want to make sure that not only is it simple, but that they're going to be successful.
1: And they can get the product too, yes. that seems to be.
2: Absolutely. And are there different product
1: categories that you never use or would never use?
2: Self-accessibility. Do not use it.
1: Okay. And then, it, you know, I don't know if this is an old wives' tale, but it used to be there was a thing with alginates with babies and something with the calcium. Is that like an old wives' tale, or is there some truth to that, like that little tiny babies could absorb some of the calcium from the alginate?
2: There's not enough calcium in the alginate for them to absorb. There was a, and there's also, because silver is one that is also that people are concerned about. I have looked and looked and I know I read it probably about 10 years ago. I believe it was in advances and it was all the different silver products that were on the market and the amount of content of silver that was in each product. And off of that is what I base the products that I brought in-house to use. Because when you bring a product in-house in a pediatric hospital, it has to be used in every age group. And so the ones that we have currently in-house, although they have silver impregnated in it, the amount of silver in there is minimal.
1: Okay. So anything you have is safe on a neonate then? Yeah. Right. So then the nurse doesn't have to figure that out with the size of their patient.
2: You know, our department is in charge of any type of wound products that are in-house. And that's the, one of the processes that we go through is we make sure that it is safe for the neonates.
1: And so say it like I'm a home care nurse and I have a tiny baby and I'm looking to try a different product or I'm in a hospital that doesn't have a lot of walk expertise besides myself. What's the best way to determine if a particular product is safe, particularly for a preemie? Because I think once you get to a child that's walking around, there's less nervousness about what you might be putting on their skin.
2: There is less nervousness. I got the honor to update the latest edition of our textbook that's getting ready to come out and i've got a table in there of different products on age groups and what you can and, and products to avoid and and products not to the biggest thing is that high count and you have to be cautious with how much of a amount of something is in the products themselves so there's not a general rule of thumb, and I wish there was. It's just come through a lot of investigation in the many years of doing this. I always go back to the manufacturers, and that's usually my first question is, is have this been tested on infants and babies? I always ask the question.
1: Okay. So then, is that in the wound or the ostomy textbook? Oh, yeah.
2: It's in the wound. It's the Bryant and NICS that will be coming out. It, it was originally slated to come out at this time. But unfortunately, because of COVID, that got pushed back. So I am honestly not sure when it's coming out.
1: Okay, but that will be soon. So that would be a great reference to keep, right? Yes. Um, I'm going to look for that.
2: And now you've been
1: working on pediatric pressure injury prevention for a long time. And I think before many other people were even thinking that was a thing with pediatrics. That's true. Yeah. You had a really nice piece in the journal last year about that topic. So I wondered if you would kind of just talk about the background of the program you have and what kind of things you're doing and kind of how you developed it.
2: Sure. So the hospital, like I had mentioned that I had worked with, that, started on their magnet journey. And when we came to, when I got the administration to recognize that, yes, we actually do have pressure injuries within the institution. And they were one of the first pediatric hospitals that was looking at safety in and around the institution started what they called a safety collaborative and originally pressure injuries was not going to be one of the hospital part conditions that they were even going to look at but I brought the information and we had done our first prevalence to our safety officer and we got added on and it was through that time we developed a team I believe very very So much in a team approach; it has to be interdisciplinary, and you have to get the buy-in not only from individual units, the nursing managers, but you also have to have administration on board that this is important work. And so, with that team approach, I actually—and I still have it—I used the prevention and management of pressure ulcers, as it was called then, the WOCN clinical practice guideline. It was in 2003 and we went through every step that is within this book and looked at it within pediatrics. Does it work? Doesn't it work? Because no one was looking at it, as you said, for peds. The only thing out at the time was a 2003 multi-site from McLean. Sandra Quigley and Martha Curley had done the grading cue, but there was no real prevention measures or anything that was there. I think the biggest thing besides the team approach that we used was the rounding. We started rounding on Mickey was first, PICU was added. And then I started adding in CV and hematology and looking physically at the bedside with my skin champion. And we just started looking at patients and seeing what the characteristics and what they were seeing because each group, is slightly different as to where the pressure injuries are coming from. And the foam dressings were just brand new to the market. And I started using them under devices because I recognized quickly that that is where our pressure injuries are coming from. It's actually one of those shower moments. <laughs> we going, I'm missing something. What am I missing? And then it just hit me. And I went back to the hospital with my... I had a project manager at the time and I had someone doing data analysis and I looked at them and I said, I want you to take out the medical devices, take them out. And our rate, we had gone it down to like 3.4. And when I pulled it out, it dropped to one, I think it was like 1.2, 1.3%. And I went, that's our problem. It was literally just being there and a constant diligence of looking at every different unit, every type of patient that was out there, and a lot of critical thinking and just putting it together as to where our problems were. And then you use the nursing ingenuity, right? We take other products from everywhere else and say, will this work in this type of a situation? And we actually became very successful in that.
1: Wow. And you've been able to sustain that over time from what I remember reading, like you had good results and you've maintained Yeah, we had
2: really good results at that particular hospital. It came down to, uh, it was like onesies and twosies, stuff that we were having with ECMO. And I partnered with a company and created a new ECMO mattress. Here at this particular institution that I'm at now, ECMO was a problem when I got here. And the other thing to a successful pressure injury prevention program is partnering. Most of the surgeons when I got here in regards to ECMO, they were like, yeah, this is just part of it they're sick, it's going to happen. Now it is a rarity that I get a pressure injury even under the ECMO cannulas or immobility. It is a rarity that we have those pressure injuries. Once we got the ECMO staff on board, because I went and got talked with the ECMO manager who promoted it to her nurses turning and repositioning because the teenagers on the cardiac unit, we were having problems with them. They had an old belief that you didn't turn or touch these patients. Now the ECMO staff look at me and they go, hey, Ann these patients do better because we are repositioning them. And it has dropped dramatically. Right now, I don't even remember the last time I've had a pressure injury related to ECMO.
1: So that's really an example of how effective turning is, right? Yes.
2: Now. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned that you had an
1: interdisciplinary team and you have skin champions, it sounds like. So who else was on, and you were on the team, who else besides you and skin champions and you had a quality person? Anybody else that somebody that was trying to start a program might want to make sure they had?
2: Yes. So we definitely partner with quality. So quality can come in many, every department, they call them different. Some call them a quality department, some call them a safety department. Department, In the first hospital I worked with, she was considered a project manager, but her focus was quality. Here in Minneapolis, I work with, it's actually the quality and safety department very closely, and they also do coaching at the bedside. So they are integral that they are a part of the team. We also had an executive sponsor. That's very important that they are are a part of it because they're the ones who can go to other managers and say, hey, this is important and this is why this is important. Same thing with a lead physician. You really want to get to tie in with the physicians, even though I'm a provider. Nurse practitioners, sometimes it just depends on the environment that you're in. Don't always hold the same weight as a physician, though. So you want to get that tie-in with a physician. At the first hospital, it was a general surgeon. Here, it's a plastic surgeon. And it's whoever has the interest. That's the other thing. It's got to have somebody who has an interest in what you're attempting to do. And then we bring in ancillary services as needed. I had a great person from dietary here, and she started looking at all the pressure injuries as they developed, especially on the hematology unit, because that's where she was at. And she noticed as soon as their nutrition started decreasing is when you started seeing pressure injuries from medical devices. Uh, that's beautiful. What a great tie into that. Respiratory therapists, we've brought them, them in. Physical therapists, we've brought them in. So again, um, trauma, we were having some issues with cervical collars. So we partnered with trauma and now that has decreased. So also you've got to have a data analysis. So whoever that data analyst is, because they keep the charts for you. I keep everything that the wound nurses put in and keep the spreadsheets, and you have to follow where are your trends at, what's going on, and then sustainability comes literally from the skin champions, because they're the ones on their unit. They're the go-to that people go to and say, hey, I've got this issue. Can you help me with that? So it doesn't become a pressure injury.
1: So just like with every other place that I know of, you have to be on it all the time to maintain
2: this? It's a constant because we have a constant turnover with nursing staff and we have new nurses coming in who don't have the experience and we have the older nurses who do have the experience and they're retiring. So it's just a constant. I know everybody is trying to get to zero and I would love to get to zero. (laughs) Yeah. But as you said, it's just everyday diligence when I'm on the floors. Hey, have you thought about this? Have you looked at that. Yesterday I got called in for a GTube site and saw that we had a tech who put a stocking net over a kid with video EEG leads. We had got rid of that in the hospital. So now I have to go <laughs> talk with the technician's manager because that kiddo could potentially come off with pressure injuries from those leads.
1: The more you look, the more you find things that you have to work on, right?
2: Yes. So yeah. it never stops.
1: Yeah. We talk a little bit about bed surfaces. Like what do you use on your standard, like quote, med surge or pediatric floors and do you routinely have a pressure reducing surface or how do you handle that in your populations, Anne-Marie?
2: So um, I like to partner with industry on these types of products. And as I worked with a company and created an ECMO mattress in the first hospital that I had pediatric hospital I worked at, I got a hold of that same company and worked with them to create a surface specifically for pediatrics that can work across the continuum. Because it becomes an issue if you have ICU beds and then you have med surgery beds and you have, Stevie wants a different bed. These kids move and they move in their beds or else you're having to transfer them, which is not ideal. And so currently we have one surface in-house and the only time we use a rental surface is only for the ECMO patients that we want on walking ECMO. So we wake them up and we want them to be able to start mobility. So we need a a bed that they can go into a chair form and just slowly bring back the mobility. But other than that, it's rarity that we order a bed surface.
1: And tell me a little bit about risk assessment tools. Do you use like the Braden Q and do you have something for the neonatal population or tell me how you manage that in your organization?
2: So when I got to this organization, they had a homegrown tool that they had been using for years, but had never been gone through the river of investigation and does not have validity or reliability behind it. And I am currently in my last um, semester before I take comps I take my comps for my PhD this summer
1: oh congratulations I didn't thank know you that.
2: That's and great. so I took the tool that had they had developed it in 2009 and 10 and I went through everything that I could find in the literature and actually updated the tool and we are in the process of validity and reliability study on it currently oh wow And it is meant to be across the continuum for the neonates through age 21. The one thing that I did a little bit different, and I I love what Martha um, Curley and Sandra Quigley did, and I applaud them for everything that they have done, but I chose to look at it a little bit differently so that it could potentially be used across the continuum that don't have really good ICUs. Maybe they don't have level three trauma within their institution. And so obtaining hemoglobins becomes difficult for them. Mine is based more off of what can the bedside nurse collect and trying to get away from actually, you know, blood values or devices.
1: So I want to have you back on this podcast when you get that work finished so you can tell us all about
2: that. Yeah, we just completed because we do a monthly prevalence and I'm so grateful for our skin champions who took the time and the energy to do the inter reliability piece um, the past two months. And so now we're looking at that and we'll go and do a chart review because of course we have to do the predictive validity of it, right? Right. And so that's the next piece of it is we have to go back and do a chart review and see whether or not these children did actually develop a pressure injury and what prevention measures were in place to see whether or not it works or it doesn't work.
1: That sounds like a huge project.
2: Yeah, but it's been fun. I didn't realize how much I actually like research.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Plus, it's going to be so useful. Like, it's so practical. Uh,
2: I hope so. We'll, we'll see what, see how the analysis turns out.
1: Well, that's exciting. So tell me, what do you see the future of pediatric WOC nursing as? It seems like there are a lot more WOC nurses that specialize in pediatrics. What do you think about all of that?
2: I am thrilled with that because when I started, there was little, I could have counted on one hand the amount of pediatric WOCs out there. And I relied heavily on my adult counterparts. And when I got started, again I'm gonna have to give a shout out to Mariana Gong, which most people do. Oh my goodness. I do not think I could have learned the amount that I had without that woman. And she was just the absolute incredibly best mentor I ever could have had. So I am always and forever be grateful to her. But what I would love, love to see is actually within our, our WOC schools that there is a module geared specifically towards pediatrics. I know people put in little bits here and there because it's off of what they know and understand. But I think for that, at this point, what are we, like 15 years down the road or something since I started, we have so much more knowledge of what we can and cannot do. And I completed recently with two other colleagues, we actually did another research project on neonatal skin. And some of the things we learned actually was completely fascinating. And it has definite implication in regards to products and how it is actually absorbed within the skin of the neonate, depending on their age group. And so that's a whole nether, something that is just starting is looking at the neonatal skin because we are now keeping these babies alive for 22 weeks. Sometimes we can keep them alive at 22 weeks gestation. So which is a miracle in and of itself. Wow, that's exciting. All right,
1: what else is important that I haven't asked you about? I know I have you in the middle of your work day, so I appreciate you chatting with me. But anything else that I should have asked you about or that's important that our listeners know?
2: Well, I think most walk nurses know this, but I'm not sure that some of our typical adult nurses. There is a situation that occurred in, again, the first hospital that I had worked at. And we had a nurse who transferred from an adult ICU into, I was working on the Tray unit at the time. And she actually said to me, and this stuck, she says, children are just little adults. And so many times when I do a program, that's one of the first slides that I put out there is that children are not little adults. Their skin is different. Their body structure is actually different. And most people don't take that into consideration. They think that there is a preconception that children just, you know, they have faster turner of cell, rate, And so they heal. This is really not an issue. I have seen so many scald wounds in my day and dehist wounds just because there are components that need to be taken in consideration with these little ones. And so I think as we move forward, you know, just think of them where they're at developmentally because we are all taught at a nursing school and you will see differences in these kiddos and they cannot always be treated as you would an adult.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. And I really appreciate all these tips for practice. I'm going to use a lot of them. So I appreciate your sharing all your expertise with us.
2: Anytime. I'm happy to. And if people want to reach out and send me any questions or other, I'm also I'm available.
1: Okay. Maybe I'll put your email at the end of this too, in case anybody
0: does want to reach out to you.
2: Sounds great, Jody. Thank you so much for
0: having me. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit WOCN.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's WOCN.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk.